Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Feels like a momentous occasion every time we, we move our, our Bible tassels over. Uh, maybe you did that in graduation. They have that like sacred moment where you move your tassel from one side to the other. It feels like that kind of moment. And, and because we, we spend so much time together in these passages, I mean, we're, we're scheduled with First John alone through Christmas. And so because it's such a momentous occasion, I want to ask you, if you're, if you're willing and able to just bow with me uh, on your knees in prayer as we start this book together. Father, here we are, your people, have got, your people <laughs> gathered under your word, and we ask that you would help us. No matter what our view of Jesus, it's surely too small. And so I pray today that you would expand it. That we might grasp the reality of hearing, knowing, understanding the word of life. And that we might honor you in the way that we respond to that this morning and through our time in this book. Oh, Father, help us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There will be wolves. They're coming. It's not an encouraging message to leave a church with. It's what Paul left the Ephesian elders. He, he meets with them and he tells them, I, I, this is the last time I'm going to see your face. I know that where I'm going, I'm, I'm destined to be arrested and, and probably headed to my death. This is the last time that I'll see you. And he says, there's going to be wolves that are going to come. Even, he says to the elders, probably from among you, some wolves. Not a real encouraging message for them as he sends them on their way and he, he says goodbye to them. But the Ephesian elders were to go back to that context where there would be wolves, and that's the context which John, the apostle John, ministered in and around. John was the, uh, the apostle that lasted the longest. He, he was the one that lived the longest and, and was around a lot later, and he was the one that would have seen some of the wolves that were cropping up around the region that Paul was sending the Ephesian elders back to. And if we want a sense of the context and the atmosphere of what believers were facing when John was writing these epistles to them, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we could look to Revelation 2 and 3 as Jesus writes these letters, in a sense, to the churches, and he speaks of what they're going through or what they will go through. And he says there's, there's persecution, surely. You're going to face hard times or you're already facing it. Some of you are going to be delivered over to death. Some of you are going to be put in jail. There's good works in the midst of that. The, the people of God are standing firm in some places. In other places, they're on shaky ground. But there's a sense of, of this is the context of the churches towards the end of the, of the century. 60, 50, 60, 70 years after Jesus has died and rose again. This was the time that John wrote. This is the time that he wrote his epistles, probably in the 90s. 60, again, so years after Jesus, and that would have been the area that he would have written to. Likely, he was in Ephesus. That was where he kind of landed for a lot of his ministry, and he would have written this to churches, believers, groups of believers around that region and area, possibly to one group that may have then circulated the letters to many groups. And in the midst of their context of, of persecution, suffering, but still standing firm, and, and false teaching, and all those things, wolves that are coming up among them, John has a message for them. And he starts his first epistle in 1 John with this message that they would have, that all readers and hearers would have the word of life. And that in having the word of life, they would have fellowship with God, 
and fellowship with others. Having the word of life doesn't mean that fellowship with God, with others, is to be without trouble. It doesn't mean that this world is to be without trouble. Believers, those who have the word of life, are those who are going to have trouble. He knows that, and he writes in the midst of it. This is expected to him. The context in which he writes, see, he could explain it to us in, in chapter 5, verse 19. He says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's his perspective. That's his view on the world. That's the right view on the world. We could look at the world and we say, what's wrong with the world? We look around and we know that obviously something is not right. Something is wrong. What's wrong with this place? And those who have the scripture, those who have this truth, we have the right answer. That, that is, after Eden, post-Eden, any sort of post-Eden world, that we're under the power of the evil one. That, that sin has entered in, and, and that explains the situation we're in in the world. This is how we're to see things. This is how we're to view the world, that the world is under the power of the evil one. And that's the context for which John writes, because that's the context of his people. That's the context of our world, too, as if the world hasn't, it hasn't changed. We are under the power of the evil one in this world. But, and so, in other words, this is a tough setting, but John doesn't give him no hope, right? He knows he writes to those who are in this world, are struggling in this world, but he says there is hope. First John 3, 8, that this is the reason that the Son of God appeared, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus' power broke through the power of the evil one with his life, death, and resurrection, Again, this doesn't then save the people who trust in Jesus from trouble in this life, but it does explain that although trouble remains, there is hope in one who came to destroy it. That though this world is in a state of sinful rebellion against God, we have hope and there is one who has come to destroy this power, and his name is Jesus. But where sin remains, we know there will continue to be trouble. And that's what's going on in John's audience as he writes First John there's trouble. There's some things that are going on. The particulars are unknown, but we get a taste of it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says that they went out from us because they weren't of us. For if they'd been of us, they would, not have, conti- they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain, plain that they are not of us. At some point along the line, this congregation, this church, this group of believers, this fellowship that John knows and loves dearly, at some point along the line, there has been some sort of major church split. And a significant portion of people have left. They've exited the church. And based on 1 John's content, we think that the reason they have departed has something to do with Jesus' identity with his essence, with his substance, who they say Jesus is. 1 John 2, verse 22, these are just some of the hints that we get of this. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Could have been one of the problems, that someone was out there saying that Jesus isn't the Christ. In chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, we get another taste of what might be going on. He says, this you know the, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So something is, is going on, so, so much so that someone could say, like, by the spirit we're saying Jesus isn't the Christ, and John wants to make sure they hear that's not right. Or in chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, again, he says the same thing, has been born of God. Chapter 5, verse 5. He says, who is it to overcome the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And so while we don't know the exact and precise nature of what the 
The group that has left was teaching and saying, we, we know that, that this has, to do, has something to do with it. All these, these crumbs along the way that kind of lead us on the trail say that they're denying something about Jesus that John thinks is essential to Jesus, something about his identity and substance. John is at pains to reaffirm to this congregation that he loves, that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God. And that if you don't believe that, then you are missing something essential to the faith that you held or hopefully to the people he's writing to, the faith that they hold. So likely those who have left rejected something along the lines of Jesus being the Christ. And yet their shaking was a major thing, as it would be in any fellowship, in any group of believers, that if you have people that have left it, it shakes those that remain. And that's surely what happened. How could it not have shaken them? At one point they were apart. They made the same confessions. They would have said the same things, used the same kind of language. They would have joined in together and looked like everyone else, lived like everyone else, sang the same song as everyone else. They would have done all those things the same. They would have shared life with one another in fellowship together. And then all of a sudden, their confession changes to Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Christ, to I like Jesus, but I'm not sure he's the Christ, the Son of God. And, and, and then from that, then their lives begin to change too. The way they're living is a little bit different. They, they start neglecting people that they are supposed to be loving. They leave their very fellowship that they were with before and they go a different direction. So they treat the people that remain differently as well. And so John writes to his beloved, the ones that he has ministered to, that he knows personally, the ones that he cares deeply for. He writes to them in the midst of a major church split and he writes for this purpose. 1 John chapter 5 verse 13. He says to them, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Again, that belief is specific. It's, it's creedal in a sense. It has content that matters dearly to John. You believe in the name of the Son of God. I write that you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, what's interesting is, is John doesn't write primarily to those who have left. He's not writing to try to compel them to return, to argue them back into the fellowship and into the congregation. He is not writing to refute their teachings, their false doctrines. He doesn't do that, although I'm sure for him, as he would have known some of these people, that would have been a temptation to write to refute what was being taught in other places that was maybe tempting his own people that he loved to be pulled away. He doesn't do that. He writes to those who remained, to those who believed that Jesus was the Christ. He writes to give them assurance that they might know that they have actual life in believing in Jesus, the Son of God. He says over and over and over again this phrase, by this we know. In chapter 2, verse 3, by this we know. Chapter 2, verse, or chapter two, verse 5, by this we know towards the end. Chapter 3, verse 19, by this we know. Chapter 3, verse 24. Chapter 4, verse 13. There's all these by this we know. In other words, John is not writing some sort of cold, sterile letter to these people. They're in the midst of some turmoil and affliction. And he writes to them to get them some assurance that they might know some things. He wants them to know. And he says, by this we know, including them. We, we want you to know. And so he writes in a, in a, a warm way to his beloved, that they might know and have assurance. Martin Luther said of this letter that it can buoy up afflicted hearts. John writes to those afflicted, to those doubting, maybe to those who are confused or just in pain and in hurt and wondering what to do about it. And John writes with the full force of a seasoned apostle who's had years, decades to meditate on and think about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He writes with these seasoned, apostolic, spirit-inspired thoughts in order to buoy the hearts of believers. In other words, these are important words, good words. And perhaps because of the affliction and the turmoil and the division in which he writes to, perhaps because of the state of the people that are there that have been shaken by those who have left, perhaps because of that, he doesn't give any sort of normal greeting to this letter. He doesn't do the Pauline thing, says, hey guys that I'm writing to, 
really thankful for you, pray for you often. My name's John, I'm an apostle, you know my background, but I'll write it again in this, he doesn't do any of that. He starts at the beginning. It worked for his gospel, so he's like, why not? I'll just do it again, it's kind of my calling card, we'll start at the beginning. And he says, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's kind of a tangled web right there. Uh, It's going to be hard to kind of disentangle that. John's entry here is is so tangled up that he he doesn't even give us kind of his main verb until verse 3. We didn't even read it yet, where he says, we proclaim, that's the main verb. He waits and tells us this for a reason. There's some intentional ordering so that he can bring emphasis to something because what's going on here is the emphasis is not so much on what he's, on on the proclamation, but on what and who he's actually proclaiming. And so the way he starts is a little bit tangled, a little bit strange, but he wants to make sure that he brings all the focus in on what he is proclaiming, not him as an apostle actually proclaiming it. It's important for his audience that they know of the substance, of the actual thing that he wants them to know. By this we know it matters to him that they get that substance, and so he starts there with emphasis there. And John identifies in these first two verses the eternal, pre-existent word of life, or in verse 2 he calls him eternal life. He identifies that with the one they know as Jesus Christ, the incarnate Christ, who he says was made known to them. Jesus is the one who not only contains life, he produces life. He is the word of life or eternal life, verse 2. So John puts weight behind this assertion using these apostolic we's here. He says, we've seen these things, we've heard these things, we've looked upon these things with our eyes. So he, he does this in kind of sequential order. We have heard of him, Think of the, the we here. I think he's speaking on behalf of, of himself and, and other apostles that have actually heard Jesus' words. They, they witnessed through even their hearing his life, death, and resurrection. But he also says that we've seen with our eyes. And I think, like, what else are you going to see him with? But the point was that it wasn't a vision. That, 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 that it wasn't something that wasn't actually there. He's, he's trying to emphasize that this was a real Jesus. There was no vision or dream that they actually saw him with their physical eyes. But then he says, we looked upon him, which again seems to be the same. And indeed, those words seen and looked upon, if you're looking them up, they, they are similar words. They're not trying to get at different things. So I think the best suggestion for why he said he had seen them with his eyes and he looked upon them was to say, one is saying that he's the eyewitness, right? That he is actually, he was there, and it establishes. I've seen him in my eyes. He's establishing him, John, as an actual eyewitness, and the second actually is the act of seeing. So I'm an eyewitness, and I've actually seen him. I've seen him with my eyes, and we looked upon him, all right? So think that's what he's doing with those, but he goes further. He also touched with his hands. Again, what, what else are you going to touch him with? Like, I mean, you, you are saying with this that it wasn't some sort of emotional connection. Like, I saw him, I heard him, and then he, he touched me, my heart and warmed it. It's not what he's saying. Like, physically, I have put my hands upon this person, Jesus. Not just some sort of emotional connection or feeling. There was physical touch. So if you, if you go to a basketball arena and you sit on, on the upper deck, right, the upper deck, I think they used to call it Loud City. That's the last time I went to a Thunder game, and it's been a while, so I don't know if it's Loud City anymore, but it's way up there, all right? And there's lots of people there, you know, lots of people, and you can hear things. You can hear the stadium noise. You get to be a part of the atmosphere. You, you're there. You belong. You can maybe hear the whistle, but that's maybe slight and few and far between if you're way high. But if you go a little bit lower, you, you don't just hear things. You start to see things, like details. I, I can see their face. I'm, I'm closer. I can, I can see how they're reacting and moving a little bit better than, than if I'm way up top and it's a little bit blurry and I can't really make out any details, right? You get a little bit closer. You can see with your eyes what's happening. But if you go all the way down, if you go courtside, not only are you going to be a part of this thing and hear what's going on, not only are you going to be able to see it with your eyes, but you better get ready because if you're courtside, someone might land in your lap. Like you, you might physically 
touch someone that lands into you, falls into you. And just as one moves kind of from the top to the bottom of the arena, gets closer and closer to the action, so too John's words here, his verbs are getting closer and closer to the real Jesus, the physical Jesus, one that he touched with his hands. That's how close he was. He was courtside. He was right there in the midst of all the action. Yeah, he'd heard it. Lots of people had heard it. Yeah, he'd, he'd seen it. Lots of people had seen it. But he'd, he'd been so close that he'd even touched Jesus with his hands. Now that word touched is used another time. It's used in the book of Luke, chapter 24, verse 39. Jesus says to his disciples, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus, to his disciples, to these people that have been eyewitnesses to his life and work, he says to them, you see me, but I don't want you getting away out of here thinking that I'm sort of vision or ghost. I have flesh and bones come and touch to make sure. He verifies his bodily resurrection by touch. And John was one of those there that physically touched and verified that Jesus was not a vision. He was not a hologram. He was in sort of some sort of illusion or ghost. But Jesus, after his death, was a real person. John was one of the number that actually physically touched the risen Christ. And he touched the Christ in order to proclaim him to others. Right? So he can verify Jesus as this real substance, as a real person, as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, so that he can proclaim it. That's what he says. This life, verse 2, was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what John wrote in John chapter 1, verse 14. And because John believes that that's true, that he knows that's true, he can verify that's true, that it's no illusion, that he hasn't made a mistake here, including after Jesus' resurrection, because that's true, he is able to proclaim Jesus as eternal life, the word of life. In Acts chapter 4, John is among the members of these, of these people that are arrested. The, the apostles were, were enemy number one to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 4, they arrest them and say, hey, you don't need to be talking about Jesus anymore. And here's what they say. Because they believed that John 1.14 was true, because they believed and had seen and had heard and had touched, they said, hey, whether we should obey you or not, we'll leave that to you. But we have to obey God, for we cannot speak, help but speak of what we have seen and heard. You might kill us, but we can't help but speak of this. Why? Because they were so sure. Because they had verified with their eyes, heard with their ears, touched with their very hands that Jesus is the Christ. And so they have to speak. They were convinced that Jesus was the word of life. And it wasn't just some stuffy phrase to them that was dull. It was, a, it was Jesus, the word of life, was worth suffering for, worth dying for, worth, worth laying their lives down for them because Jesus was real to them. And as the apostles, as those who uniquely were eyewitnesses to Jesus, saw Jesus, heard Jesus, touched Jesus, they testified to Jesus with vital testimony, vital proclamation because others didn't hear, see, touch, or couldn't hear, see, touch like us. We're not going to hear the words from John 10, 10, that I came to give life and life abundantly. We're not hearing those words. We're not going to hear the words that Jesus spoke to Mary and Martha, that I am the resurrection and the life. Those words aren't falling on our ears from Jesus' lips. We're not seeing Lazarus raised from the dead. We're, we're not going to be able to place our hands in Jesus' resurrected sides. That is not apart from the apostles' proclamation and teaching and writing it down and recording it for us. In their words, we get to see, hear, and touch, in a sense, Jesus. In their testimony, in the scripture, we, we get to see, hear, and touch Jesus. And if we see, hear, and touch him there and believe those things, then there's life there. 
It's life. Jesus is the word of life. John wrote about the word of life so that his hearers, those who would read these things, would have that life, would have eternal life, would believe in Jesus and have life. And that's a question to put before us. Do you have life? Not, are you alive? Do you have life? It's summer, and some are seeking life in their kids' sports and in their kids' activities, thinking that this will give life. It's summer, kids. Some of you are seeking life in sports and your activities, thinking, this is going to give me life. Summer's going to soon be over, and then maybe some of you are going to seek life in how your kid achieves and their GPA and how they move forward and progress in their, their career or kids, or others, like some of you are going to seek life in how you're living it out, how you're achieving, and what you're earning, and what you're gaining. Some are trying to find life in being kind of their authentic self, and figuring that out so that we might move forward. But we know the authentic self is a sinful self, so that's not going to bring life. Some are like the religious elite in Acts chapter 4. They sought life in their appearances. They like to be thought of well by outsiders. They like to sit in prominent places and wear prominent things. So they cared about their appearance in front of others. They cared about how they looked and their works in front of others. They thought they were righteous because of the things that they did, the works that they performed. They liked having a position, a, a place of power and authority. Some are seeking life like them. Some are like the Samaritan woman that John writes about that are trying to find life in relationships, that are trying to say, this will bring me life, but there's no lasting life there. John heard Jesus say to her in chapter 4, verse 14, this is where life is found, right? John 4, he says, if you drink of any other well, if this well you're going to be thirsty again, but if you drink of the water that I give to you, you will never thirst again. And John testifies here that what he heard that man, Jesus, say to that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 is true and has come in Jesus. So much that he can say as he overheard John 17, 3, this is eternal life you would believe, that you would know the only true God, believe in Jesus as the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that eternal life is not found in relationships apart from relationship with God, knowing God, knowing his son, Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. The reality is that no matter what, if I hit your category of where you're seeking life or not, all of us are seeking for life. All of us are seeking for something that can justify our existence. All of us are, are seeking something that would fulfill us and give meaning to our life. And ultimately, John says, and he testifies over and over again, ultimately that's only found in the word of life. Ultimately that's only found in Jesus. Everything else will fail you. Everything else will let you down. So do you have life? One pastor, theologian, Think says this well and asks the question well. He says, is Jesus Christ real to me? Now, that's a key question. Don't assume that you know the answer to that. Is Jesus real to me? And he goes on, I'm not asking whether you know things about him, but do you know God? Are you enjoying God? Is God the center of your life, the soul of your being, the source of your greatest joy? He is meant to be. If you're enjoying something else, if something else is the center, if something else is the soul of your being, if something else is the source of your greatest joy, then you don't have life eternal. What is life to you? There's only one source of eternal life. He himself is life and he produces it and his name is Jesus. John wrote that we might know him, that we might know the word of life that is being offered to us. And that Jesus, he stands ready to grant us, to give us, to meet us with life. But look what John goes on to say. What does this life with Jesus accomplish? What does salvation accomplish? What's its goal? What is receiving eternal life? What is having eternal life? What does it lead to? What is its goal? 
He states it for us. First Peter says this, First Peter 3.18, that, that Christ came and died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might do what? Bring us to God? John says something similar. First John, the word of life has come, and what does this word of life do? Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you, so that you may what? Have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation, having the word of life, having eternal life, grants us the super reality of having fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Fellowship with the Creator God, the one who all have rebelled against, the one who all have given the stiff arm to and turned away from. Relationship, fellowship with that God is possible because the eternal Word took on flesh, came and lived among us, died a sacrificial death, and rose from the grave. Fellowship with God. Adam and Eve, they, they walked with God in the garden. In the cool of the day, they were able to walk with Him in this perfect place called Eden. Man, that wouldn't that be awesome? We get the cool of the day, there's tons of fruit, it's all beautiful, it all tastes good, except for that one, we don't do that. God told us not to, He's good, we can enjoy Him anyway, we don't need that, we have plenty on our own. They had that, they can enjoy that fellowship, and yet sin entered in. And after that, we're, we're in a world that is under the power of the evil one. A world that's full of thorns, that Adam is sweating in. I mean, like, we, we understand his sweat now, we walk to our garage and we're sweating now. Because of sin. <laughs> but what was broken in Eden by sin is restored in Jesus, Amen. the word of life. Jesus comes and he brings restoration in his wake to restore us, to bring us back to God, that we might have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. In other words, Jesus didn't just gain us forgiveness of sins. Jesus didn't just accomplish for us righteousness for unrighteous people. Jesus didn't just earn and achieve for us an eternity free of hell. He did all those things. Those are all really good gifts. But primarily what Jesus gives to us is fellowship with God. That's the, the gift that he earns for us. That is the, the gospel is that we get not eternity free from hell, although that's good. Not forgiveness of sins, that's good as well. Not just Jesus' righteousness, because even though we're unrighteous, we get God. That's what Jesus accomplishes for us. He's restoring what was broken by sin and Eden. Man, this, is feel, this feels like this moment. The, what he says in verse 3 is like, take off your sandals. This is holy ground that we're talking about here in verse 3. If we're in Jesus, if we trust in this word of life, we have fellowship with God. And in the confines of this fellowship, we get to walk. Walk with, have life with God. We get to be loved. We have all the love that we'll ever need in Him. And we get to love Him in return. We get to hear from God. He speaks to us. We, we read it in his word. We get to understand and know and enjoy him. We get to talk to God and respond to God. We call it prayer, where we, where we get to say things to him. We get to cast our burdens upon him. We get to hear from him and let him minister to our anxious hearts, our fearful hearts, our sinful hearts. We get to find refuge in him. We get to cast our burdens on him. We get to receive from him. We get to have this constant awareness that he's with us and will never leave us, that we're not alone, and that we have all the assurance we'll ever need because we have fellowship with God. And I think John is rightly eager that his readers would understand that. He wrote for this purpose, that you would know that you have fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son. But John also insists on something else. John also insists that our fellowship that we have, he wrote, that we proclaim also to you, that you might have fellowship with us. With us. Remember the context. Some of them, some of their number, the people that they had looked in the eyes, spoken to, probably sung with, prayed with, lived some life with, some of them have left. And as they left, they made some different claims about Jesus. Something along the lines that maybe Jesus isn't the Christ. Something along the lines that's different than what John has already said about the Christ in verses 1 through 3. They've left and they're making some sort of different claim than that. And so John 
writes with this great content to make sure they know the content, but he insists, if you believe in the real, verifiable Son of God, the eternal Word of life that took on flesh, if you believe in that, then you have fellowship with others who hold to that. With us, he says. He insists on the with us. You have fellowship with those who hold to those things too. He gives them safe ground. You, you can have assurance and safety here. Like if you believe these things, you have fellowship. That fellowship's still with us. We're, we're still good here. These, these fellowships, the fellowship with us and the fellowship with God, it's more of like a, a two-pronged fellowship. It's not two different fellowships. It's the same thing, but these fellowships, they belong together. And they are John's stated purpose here. The stated objective of proclaiming to them the word of life was that they might have fellowship with us which is a fellowship with God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. They go together. In other words, there's, there's no fellowship with God without fellowship with others who have fellowship with God. There's, there's no fellowship with God without others who have fellowship with God. You can't love fellowship with God and not love fellowship with others who fellowship with God. John is going to speak in these letters several times, speaking of this fellowship with others in familial terms, as if they're a family. Now, he speaks to them as family. He relates to them before God as family. In chapter 3, verse 1, this great verse that we'll get to see what kind of love the Father, familiar language, has given to us that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. He relates to them as family. The, the fellowship with us is a fellowship that's a family, a family of God. He's the Father. The other one who believes in this eternal word of life are children of that Father. Now, here's what we know about families, is that they're messy. Like, we get it. There's, no family has got it together. Right? If you thought that every family was kind of like everything's ironed out and there's no issues, like, check your pulse, because if you're alive, there's, there's some dysfunction in our families. We, we know you've got crazy uncles, and that sometimes at dinner they say strange things. We also know that you are that crazy uncle sometimes. <laughs> and so we're all kind of included in the dysfunction, right? Like, we're all kind of a mess, but we're family, and we, we try to work it out the best we can, right? They're messy, but guess what about this family? It's God's family. His dearly loved children. And those who belong to this family are God's fellowship, his children, ones that he calls his own. John wants people to receive the word of life and to be welcomed by God, have fellowship with God, but that fellowship that they have with God includes them in a fellowship with others, a fellowship with God's very family. It is incompatible to claim fellowship with God and deny be above or be without fellowship with God's family. Fellowship with God and fellowship with others are parallel tracks. They go together. Your fellowship came to write that you might have fellowship with us. And that fellowship that you have together is the fellowship of the Father and of His Son. So here's what we can't do. If, if our fellowship with God and fellowship with others are parallel tracks, then you don't say, you know what? I don't need fellowship with those who have fellowship with God because I'm going to draw closer to God. So I'm, not going, to dis I'm going to distance myself from those who have this fellowship over here in order to make myself closer to fellowship with God. You also don't do the flip of that, right? You also don't go the other way and say, you know what, I need to, I need to put some distance with fellowship with God so that I might get closer to fellowship with one another. That one seems more absurd, right? But we do both. And you don't distance yourself from others in order to have closer and tighter fellowship with God. And you don't distance yourself from God in order to have closer and tighter fellowship with others. I'm not saying you don't spend some time alone, right? You, you spend some time alone, that's good. But I'm saying that if you only spend time alone with God, then you are not walking in these fellowships that God has given to you. And that's some sort of incompatible with what the scripture would describe you as part of the children of God, as the family of God, where there's other people in fellowship, all who have fellowship with God. God uses others 
to grow us, to strengthen us, to enrich us, to bring us into closer, deeper, better fellowship with himself. One of the primary means of grace for your life is fellowship, is other people in your life. That is one of God's primary means to draw you into deeper, stronger, better fellowship with himself. And stronger, deeper, better fellowship with God enables us and empowers us, grows us, sweetens us, strengthens us, deepens us in fellowship with others. They go together. Fellowship with God, if we have that fellowship with God, we've received the word of life, actually enables, empowers us to really belong to others in the right way, to be free, to be honest, that we're the crazy uncle and we need help. And who helps the crazy uncle? The family. They get involved. They run to it. They flock to it and say, how can we help this crazy uncle who keeps saying strange things? Let's point him to the word of life. We can be honest. We can be authentic. We can be vulnerable. And we can still know that we belong, ultimately because we belong to the Father, but that he's also given us the family, his children. But I want us to notice the nature of this fellowship with others. One commentator says that it arises from and depends upon our fellowship with God. All those words matter. Our fellowship, any fellowship that's kind of, say, horizontal, arises from, depends upon our fellowship with God. Our fellowship with one another is, is deeper than just some sort of common interest. We, we don't just all like the same sports team. We don't just like the same hobby. It's deeper than that. It's not that our fellowship is, is deeper than, than sharing some sort of love for some common traditions. Like we're the people who really like on Sunday morning to just gather together. I like to sing and pray and be around these people. So we share these common traditions and that's kind of it. Our fellowship with one another is deeper than that. Amen. Believers' fellowship with one another is built on the reality that Jesus is everything to us. Jesus is everything to all of us. That he's the very word of life. That's what our fellowship is built on. It arises from and depends upon our fellowship with God. So all those who receive Jesus as the word of life, the one who took on flesh, the very son of God, the Christ, have fellowship, John says, with us, with the family of God. And he said, indeed, Indeed, that fellowship, if that's what you're claiming, that's what you believe and trust, indeed, that fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. That word, indeed, what an assuring word in the midst of a time of division. When many that they had known and loved and maybe trusted have departed and are saying different things. What an assuring word in a, in a world that's under the power of the evil one. Where things seem to be chaotic and, and out of balance, where they're dysfunctional. What an assuring word in a, in a world where there will be wolves. People will come and go. False claims of Jesus will spread. But indeed, we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. So although there's going to be wolves and the people are going to come and go and then there's going to be false teachings and false uh, teachers arise and although there's going to be this world that we're living in under the power of the evil one, guess what? The flock is still intact because they have the word of life. They have fellowship with each other, which helps them to persevere and to stand, and they have fellowship with God. So church, you have the, you have the word of life. Do you have fellowship with God? Do you then have fellowship with us, with other believers who have fellowship with God? Those things are yours in Christ. Let's pray together. I think it would be a mistake um, for me not to just provide a little time for you guys to reflect on that question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the one who existed from the beginning? Let's just take a few minutes to pray and think through that question together.
Jesus, you are Lord of Lords. You're King of Kings. You're preeminent. Lord, you are everything. Forgive us, Lord, where we are mistaken in our understanding of who you are. Forgive us where we are ignorant of your power and the scope of your authority. It is life to know you. And so we, Lord, we ask for life this morning. We ask for deeper understanding, Lord, that we might touch you through the scriptures, that our hearts might be opened to the truth of who you are. Lord, we know that we have an enemy who seeks to distort that, to confuse it, to undermine it, and question it, Lord. We feel it on a daily basis. We see it when we turn the TV on, when we flip the radio on, when we look around us, God, we see the war that's being waged for the souls of men and ultimately for your glory. And yet, Father, we know that the war has been won, that we are not fighting for victory, but that we are fighting from it because we serve Jesus. I pray, Father, that as we go through this book, that you would bring supernatural clarity to our hearts and minds as to our position before you. For those who know you, God, that we would be strengthened, equipped, built up to withstand the attacks, to bring the fight to the enemy, to push back darkness with truth in our personal lives, in our corporate lives as a church, Lord, in our lives in this world. For those who don't know you, God, I pray that, that you would be made known to them. I know that there, there are probably people this morning in this service who do not know you. They know about you. They may have read the Bible through many times, but they do not know you as Lord. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would pull the blinders off, that you would make yourself known to those who do not know you, that they would turn from their sin and believe. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for the provision of your word. We thank you for the book of 1 John and the powerful truth that it brings us, Lord. We need it. Help us just to feed off of it these next few months. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, periodically, when we start a new series, we'll kind of pick a song that, that fits well with the theme of the book. And so probably Dylan sent an email out with this song, but I would say this song will be sung a few times while we um, are in First John, and it's about that fellowship we just learned about. So would you stand and sing with us?
can hear 